Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt. But that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Mr. Mark Cushman. Now Mark is a writer, producer, director, and a Saturn award-winning author, which he won for his definitive three-volume book set, These Are the Voyages, a history of the original Star Trek TV series. He is also the author of an equally superb three-volume set of books titled Erwin Allen's Lost in Space, an authorized biography of a classic sci-fi series. As far as research is concerned for the original Lost in Space series, our listeners know that I consider this set of books my Bible. And if you love the show and you don't own these books, you should, because the production information, behind-the-scenes stories, and interviews in these books are tremendous, and it's all written in an incredibly enjoyable style that Mark has become renowned for. Before we speak with him, I want to give you a little background information on Mr. Cushman. Mark was born in San Diego, but grew up traveling the road with his father, making pit stops along the way up and down the West Coast, as well as Hawaii and New Mexico before finally landing in LA. His knack for writing became apparent early on, and he wound up working for 30 years in TV and film. His TV writing assignments include Star Trek The Next Generation, Diagnosis Murder, among many others. He also has numerous other TV and film screen credits as producer, director, showrunner, etc. In addition to his books on Star Trek and Lost in Space, Mark has written books on the groundbreaking 1960s TV show I Spy, and Long Distance Voyagers, the story of the Moody Blues. He has a book coming out in May 2018 about another Irwin Allen TV series, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And he's currently working on an additional book about Star Trek titled, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. As always, we will link to Mark's bookshop in our show notes. For all his work, but especially for his work on Lost in Space, we owe Mark Cushman a great debt of gratitude. Oh, Mr. Mark Cushman, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's an honor to have you on our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. It's an honor to be here. Well, I want to thank you for all the tremendous work that you've done, as uh, not just as an author, but really it's a researcher and a historian of two shows that I grew up with and love, Star Trek and Lost in Space. And a third coming up, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh, well, I hope we'll get a 
a, a preview, <laughs> a sneak preview of that down the road because uh, I'm excited. Which is your favorite, by the way, of those three? Is it Lost in Space? Um, boy, <laughs> you put me on the spot there. Right now, I'm I'm totally focused on Lost in Space, but I uh-huh. I, would, I would have a hard time choosing between the two of them. They're they're different, and I like I love them for different reasons. I'm sure you can agree. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they're 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 for different moods. Sometimes you're in a Star Trek mood. Sometimes you're in a Lost in Space mood. They they touch different things inside of you. Uh, I think Star Trek touches your mind more, and Lost in Space touches your heart, and touches the uh, the child in all of us that that if we're lucky is always alive and well. Well, I was going to ask you, how did you become interested in doing the books on Lost in Space? And, and by the way, I just have to mention. I am constantly referring to the book, Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. You call it the authorized biography of a classic sci-fi series. I, I now have uh-huh. talked about it so often in the podcast, I, I simply say the book, and everybody knows what I mean. So how <laughs> well, did, yeah. you're, be, you're better than me because you were able to say the whole title. I don't know if I could. <laughs> so you're, you, you've been practicing. That's great. Thank you. Well, how did you get? In, how did you decide to do the book on Lost in Space? And can you share with us a little bit about your methods and sure. the process? Well, I love reading nonfiction, and uh, and, and I, when I watch a movie or I watch a TV show or even listen to music like an album, like I just did a book on the Moody Blues, so I'm going to use them as an example. Mm. Listen to a Moody Blues album. I always uh, jump online to see if there's a book on that subject because I want to read about what went into the making of that album or what went into the making of that TV show and more specifically the episodes of that TV show and, and not just skim the surface. I, I want to be there. I want to feel like I'm there. I want to feel like I'm watching the thing come together and, and seeing the passion of the people that are doing it and how they're sticking their necks out and then share the joy that they must share when, when it becomes successful and people respond to it. Uh, I want to be part of that. And, uh, and I'm always disappointed because I can't find books that do that. Right. And uh, most, most biographies are kind of dark. It seems like the person writing the biography doesn't even like the person they're writing about. I write about things that I love and things that I'm really interested in. And uh, so I started with a book called uh, On I Spy because I knew Robert Cope, and that was a very important show when I was growing up. It was the first show to put a white and a black together in co-starring capacity, the first show where the the black actor won an Emmy. Bill Cosby was the first uh, actor to win an Emmy, and he won three in a row for that show as best lead in a series, not supporting. And, and, uh, And it was the first show to shoot around the world, and so many things that it did that changed uh, uh, um, the, the face of TV, not only from a civil rights point of view, but from a production point of view. And and nobody ever did a book. And I would check every 10 years when I would <laughs> I would get my, my I Spy fix and watch some episodes, and I would look to see if there was a book, and there wasn't. So I finally got in touch with uh, Bob Culp and said, look, I, I'm willing to do this if you're willing to sit down with me for days and days and days and tell me everything that went into making this show, because how the hell did you do it? Yeah. How did you pull it off uh, doing that back then? And so that was the first one. And then I did uh, uh, Star Trek, which is a three-book set, one for each season of the original show. 
and we have a chapter on every single episode, mm. and uh, um, just like in, in the Lost in Space book. And then, and that was a big success, and and I was very um, proud to receive a Saturn Award for that because they usually don't even give those out for books. Uh, that's from the Academy of Science Fiction, uh, Horror, and Fantasy Films. Uh, but right. they uh, made it a special achievement award because it it does what I wanted it to do. It it not only tells you everything that went on and and corrects all the folklore that's out there, and there was tons. Uh, on the internet, as there always is, and um, but it it you you read a chapter, you read about that episode, and you want to watch it again, and that that's the real big thing. It's like watching a a, uh, a featurette on uh, the making of a movie on a DVD, a special feature, and then you then you watch the movie and you get so much more out of it. So that's that's what I did, and after I finished those books, I was trying to think, okay, what do I want to do next? And I ran into Kevin Burns. Um, uh, who uh, is the shepherd for all the uh, Irwin Allen's properties, including Lost in Space, and he's the one to thank for bringing this Netflix series together. Right. And anyway, I went up to him and I said, look, um, uh, let me show you these books, and I'm thinking maybe uh, Lost in Space would deserve this, and Irwin Allen would deserve this, and he looked at them and and we did it, or I did it, but with his with his permission, and that's why it says authorized because he provided me all the pictures and access to Irwin Allen's private papers, so I was able to dig through those things and and uh, get all the information that you're reading in the book and bring wow. it to you, and more so bring you back to them, take you back in time, and let you be there. And he connected me in with all the cast members and for interviews and things of that sort. The same thing Gene Roddenberry did when I did the Star Trek books, because I started those back when Gene was still with us and, uh, and interviewed him. And then over the years, as I had time, I interviewed Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman and all the other people involved in Star Trek. And then, uh, you know, getting into the, te- the talent, the cast, the technicians. And, uh, but the main spine of these books, sorry for the long answer, the main spine of these books, as, you're, as you've seen, is the memos. Right. Because people's memories kind of fade, but if you go back and you find all the memos that were being written at the time that the show was being made, you're able to see what they were dealing with and what they were trying to accomplish. And it also answers a lot of mysteries, like why did the show change and things of that nature. Well, I want to dig a little bit deeper into into some of those details, but quickly, at the beginning of the book, one of the of the first volume of the Lost in Space book, one of the things I really appreciated is you gave us a really a, a mini biography just of Irwin Allen. I knew nothing about mm-hmm. some of his background. That was fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't either. And when I started doing the book, I looked to see if there was a book on him and there was not. And so I did what I hate doing is I went on the internet to see what's on there because really, I mean, half the stuff, if I would say 80% of the stuff on the internet is not true. There may be some truth in it, but it's so distorted and you don't know where that information is coming from. And so it creates all this folklore. Mm. And so I went there searching to find out what I could about Irwin Allen, and there was so little information, it was ridiculous. So when I was given access to the Irwin Allen private papers, um, I started going through all those things, and I found out where he was born, I found out what his real name was, I found out uh, talking to his colleagues and talking to members of of his family, uh, and Kevin Burns and others, uh, the, the process of him coming to Hollywood all by himself, didn't know a soul, yeah. uh, grew up poor. He was a poor in the Bronx, 
And he came out here and he invented a career for himself, came up with a name and, and just started working his way up in the industry uh, and became an agent and then became a, um, a columnist and became a radio show host and created the first uh, panel show. And, but he loved science fiction. And so he was gradually moving towards wanting to become a film producer and director and writer and then moving that into the area of science fiction and uh, and into TV. And, and most people want to go from TV to films. Irwin did it the opposite way <laughs> because he was a workaholic. And what everybody told me about Irwin was that uh, the worst day of the week for him was, was Friday. The best day was Monday. Now, that's kind of the opposite of most people. But he loved working, so he Mondays were great. He got to start a new work week. On Fridays, he got a little depressed because now what's he going to do on the weekend? And uh, so he, they all said Irwin all, would always create a crisis. So we would all have to come out to his house and have meetings on the weekend. <laughs> so for him, TV was perfect because TV is, is crisis from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. Wow. Well, you told me or earlier when we were talking offline that he, he left a big impression out there, not only with the films he did before Lost in Space and his TV career, but the first TV show that he got on the air, that was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. He had, he had done the movie, and uh, he, he was under contract at 20th Century Fox, or had a deal with them, and uh, had offices on the lot. And he did several movies for them, uh, including Five Weeks in a Balloon and uh, The Lost World was the first one he did for them. And then he did, did Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea as a feature film. And it, he, and it was very expensive, as all science fiction movies are, especially right. back then when you didn't have CGI. You had to build everything, everything. And they had uh, three different models for the sea view. One was a few feet long, one was several feet long, another one was 24 feet long. Wow. And they could sell, sell on a lake to get the, uh, the shots from above and so forth. And, uh, and he built all the sets and all the costumes and all the props. And he, he had a lot of footage that didn't get into the movie of the sea view as well. So when 20th Century Fox uh, kind of got into some hard times, because uh, Cleopatra cost so much money to make, and the last Marilyn Monroe movie was not completed, and they were out all this money, mm. uh, their, their film division kind of got frozen. And Irwin, being a workaholic, couldn't stand that. So he, he went to ABC and said, you need a science fiction show. You just canceled The Outer Limits, and that was an anthology. And CBS just canceled Twilight Zone, and that was an anthology. Nobody's done... A, a series every week, an hour-long dramatic series with continuing characters and futuristic sets and all that. Uh, the, the only thing that had ever even touched that was in the early 50s. There were things like Captain Video, but those were done super cheap on yeah. video, yeah. you know, not filmed, not, you know. So he went to them, and, and their response was, as expected, we don't have it because you can't do it. You can't do that kind of a show for television. Not, you can't you can't uh, keep up with the schedule delivering half a science fiction movie every week, which literally is what it is an hour, and you can't do it with the budgets that we're we're willing to pay. And he said, "I will do it because I have saved all the the, the miniatures, if you call twenty four feet a miniature. You know, I've saved all that. I've saved the sets. I've saved the costumes. I've got a lot of extra footage, and you can have it all for one dollar." Wow. And then, pay, and then pay me what you would normally pay for an hour-long dramatic episode. And he, so he, and the other thing they were worried about was, would would there be a big enough audience for this, 
for Madison Avenue. Uh, they saw science fiction as something the kids watched. And uh, so would they get enough people watching? Back then, you needed like 20 million people tuning in each week to make it worthwhile, mm. uh, which any show today would love to have. And uh, uh, so he said, I can do this, and it will be a hit, I promise you. Well, he had a great reputation as a film producer. So they stuck their neck out, and they let him do it. And the pilot was the most expensive pilot ever made for TV, <laughs> despite having all these freebies he was yeah. bringing in. And it was a struggle. As you read the book, you see how difficult it was. Well, as you read the Voice of Sea book, which is coming out in, a, in about a month, uh, you see all the, um, the difficulty in keeping that show on schedule and on budget. But he pulled it off, and it was uh, in the top ten. It was winning its time slot. So uh, he gets a call from CBS, and he had been talking to them about doing Swiss Family Robinson. And so the idea came up in the course of a couple meetings, what if we make it Space Family Robinson? What if we do Swiss Family Robinson in outer space? Can you actually do this? And, of course, everyone said, I can do anything. <laughs> and he did it, and Lost in Space pilot was then the most expensive pilot ever made. Uh, and Star Trek's pilot, which was being done at the same time at a different studio right across town, became the most expensive pilot ever made after that. And um, he delivered it, and it went on the air, and he somehow managed to get those episodes done and delivered. And you see, reading the book, sometimes it was days before it was supposed to air that he would deliver this thing. Sometimes he had to shoot two episodes simultaneously, right. splitting up the cast and the sets. But he managed to do it, and it won its time slot. It was a big hit, and that's how Star Trek got on. Because if it wasn't for Voice of OMC and Lost in Space proving that this could be done, NBC would never have, have taken Star Trek the year after Lost in Space premiered. I think it's so interesting that Star Trek and Lost in Space, they both had pilots that were shot, I guess that really weren't the premiere episodes for the show. That was kind of interesting, and... The, in fact, the pilot for, and we've talked about this on the show, the pilot for Lost in Space was totally different. It didn't have the two famous characters, Dr. Smith and the robot, but right. you sort of explain that process in the book. Tell me about that. Well, the pilot he shot, as you know, and you can watch it on DVD, became the first five episodes of the series. But you can watch it as a pilot. It was like about uh, 70 minutes long, maybe 80 minutes long. And uh, and no Smith, no robot. Uh, but it's basically the uh, character arc and the story arc of, the, of what became the first five episodes. And it was it was just nonstop action. Big set pieces, big, big events, action sequences. Too much. You, you get exhausted watching right. it. But it's just dazzling. I mean, and that's why it was so expensive to do. Um, and, and so he did that, and CBS saw it and fell in love with it. How could they not? They said, we get to have this for TV. This is amazing. So they bought the series. But when Irwin was, after he got the green light to do the series and they started um, designing it, they said, well, first of all, we're not going to be able to continue doing episodes like that pilot. We can't match the scope of it. Secondly, it's going to get boring pretty quickly because it's, it's the family against the elements and against whatever they come up against, earthquakes, solar storms, mm. aliens, whatever it's going to be. It's always just going to be them against them. So his story editor that he hired and brought in, uh, Tony Wilson, uh, said, you know what we need? We need a long John Silver. 
and his parrot. Yeah. <laughs> if we're, if we're, if we're, we're doing Swiss Family Robinson, but what if we did Swiss Family Robinson meets Treasure Island? And we bring in the pirate. We bring in Long John Silver, who, who the boy falls in love with. <laughs> but he can't really be trusted. He's got a good side, he's got a bad side, and, and so forth. And let him be an internal component in this story so we have uh, conflict within the family, within the humans uh, on the ship. And Irwin immediately saw the potential of that, and he said, let's do it. And they, they've got uh, Jonathan Harris, and they built the robot, and they took that, that pilot episode and they broke it up into pieces and expanded on each one of the pieces, inserting the robot, inserting Dr. Smith, filming new scenes uh, and combining them with the old, and uh, turned it into those first five episodes, which are just stunning. And the new Netflix movie uh, series, by the way, is based on those first five episodes. The first season, 10 episodes of the Netflix show, basically follows that, that story arc of the, of the first five episodes of Lost in Space, which all came from that pilot film. So that, that's what happened there. And CBS loved the idea. Everybody instantly saw that this is better. Movies and TV are all about conflict. So you've got to have somebody within the, the group who's, who's a, uh, a villain, uh, who's betraying them, who can create internal conflict. Uh, so it's not just us against the elements. One of the things that's great about reading the books is you really get to see, as you say, from the inside out, how the show is not only produced, but how it evolved over time. And I want to talk a little bit more about that with you and, and talk mm -hmm. about Jonathan Harris and Dr. Smith. But uh, that reminded me of something I was going to ask you before. The casting, both for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and but especially for Lost in Space, how was Irwin able to get such top-notch talent for his shows? That, that was part of his formula when he was doing the movies as well, and it continued to be later when he went back into feature films with uh, The Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno and uh, The Much Maligned Swarm. Yeah. You know, he, would, <laughs> he would bring in uh, the biggest stars he could get. He would make it an all-star cast. So his, his whole thing was giving you spectacle. And starting with the cast, then the story, then all the special effects, and he would just do that. And, and very few other people were. Well, he wanted to do that in television, too. And that had never really been done, the show with the continuing cast. And so Lost in Space was an all-star cast. Uh, I mean, Voice of the Sea was as well. Uh, Richard Basehart was huge in, in movies and, and stage. David Harris uh, Hedison had had his own series. Uh, Robert Dowdell had just come off of uh, Stony Burke. So he did it with that show first, and then he did it even more so with Lost in Space. He had Guy Williams, mm. who was Zorro. I mean, right. that, that, that was huge. Anybody who was around back then and remembers, Zorro was big, big. And so, uh, you know, he's on the cover of TV Guide. He's, he, he's a star. Lockhart, who had been a movie in movies and stage, but she had just finished six, maybe seven uh, years on Lassie. Uh, you had Mark um, uh, Goddard, who had just come off of his third series. He was in Johnny Ringo, a western. Then he was in The Detectives. Then he was in a sitcom called um, Can't Think of the Title Offhand. It's in the book, and um, so he had done three series in a row. Uh, the, Angela Cartwright, who had just come off of uh, seven series, uh, seven seasons of uh, the Danny Thomas show, Make Room right. for Daddy, and um, uh, and who are we forgetting? That's well, the well father, she was in mother, Sound of Music as well. And she had just finished Sound of Music, um, which was uh, released in mid '65, just weeks before Lost in Space premiered, and uh, Billy. Mummy was uh, everywhere 
on TV. Right. Uh, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock, you name it, he was in it. And uh, so he was probably the most famous child star at that time. And the least known was uh, Marta Krista, but she, Kristen, but she, um, she had just done a, a Disney film. She had been doing a lot of high-profile guest spots on TV, and she was also a model, so she was Beautiful. all over the place. So everybody yeah. knew her face. Everybody knew her. So every one of these people is absolutely familiar with the viewing audience. It's, it's an all-star TV cast. And so that was the, the nucleus of the original pilot. Then when it came time to bring in uh, Dr. Smith, Jonathan Harris had just uh, come off of his second series. He was second banana in both, but he was in The Thin Man with uh, Michael Rene, and then he was in um, uh, The Bill Dana Show right. uh, with, with Bill Dana, and uh, Maxwell Smart was in there, uh, Don Adams, Don Adams. And, and him, jo- and Jonathan Harris. So they were the three stars of that show. It had just been canceled after a couple seasons. So he was very well-known as well. So every one of these people, I didn't know this when I turned the show on, and I was eight years old or nine years old <laughs> when it premiered. I didn't know it. I, I, I recognized Zorro and I recognized June Lockhart uh, because I had been watching Zorro and Lassie as a little kid, but I didn't recognize the rest of them. And, uh, and I didn't, uh, I, I don't even know if I recognized Billy Mummy because I don't know if I'd been watching Twilight Zone that much at that age. It was on late at night and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> but, uh, but I, di- I didn't know uh, uh, that all of them were so well known uh, but they, but they were. It was an all star cast, except for the robot, and he became the biggest star on the show. <laughs> okay, so they 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 had all these actors signed up, and and uh, I guess they had contracts or whatever for the pilot. Mm-hmm. And then they add Doctor Smith, and the robot. Right. They add Doctor Smith, and you know Jonathan Harris is a great actor too. So there was a little bit of a dilemma in the book. You talk about uh, the billing. Can you go over that story? Because I think the listeners yeah, like that. Because, because all the contracts were in place. Guy Williams was going to get top billing, followed by June Lockhart, followed by Mark Goddard, followed by uh, uh, Angela and Billy and, and, and uh, Marta. Uh, so it was all pretty much in the contracts of where their names were going to appear. So they bring in Jonathan Harris, and, uh, and he says, well, I'm not taking seventh billing. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he says, what about if you make me special guest star? And Irwin flipped, not in a good way. <laughs> That's never been done. That can't be done. He says, anything can be done. You know, you just have to be the first person to do it. Well, that appealed to Irwin. Irwin liked to be the first. So he checked around. And he called the networks and everything. And it basically came down that, okay, we'll do it. Uh, but it also was to their benefit because um, even though they were all pretty confident that this would be a good character for the show in the long term, uh, they didn't know uh, if a villain of his type with children in the cast, and it's going to be in the family hour. They didn't know if that was really such a good idea to have him be there through the whole course of the series, maybe just to get it set up. He's the the guy who creates the problem, Mm. who sabotages the ship, it crashes, he helps get everything going, and then maybe kill him off. So they, 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 they had the option to go either way. And so they gave him that special guest star billing, and they gave him a contract that said he was tied to them as long as they wanted him. He couldn't leave. He's under contract. But they're not tied with keeping him into the show. They can keep him in seven episodes, eight episodes, ten, and then say, 
bye-bye if they if they choose. So he knew that that was the situation he was under. And um, and even though he was working all the time, uh, I mean, the real goal for anybody was to be in a series because then you're working every week. You know, sure. you're getting a really nice paycheck. So he came on the show. And, uh, and then when the show started airing, uh, the network started getting letters from parents who were saying, our kids love this show. They're hooked on the show. They're going to throw a fit if we don't let them watch the show. Yeah. But... They're not sleeping at night. They're having nightmares. It's too scary. It's too dark. Uh, and, the, and that Smith character is too bad, and the robot is too, too uh, menacing. And uh, it's scaring our kids to death. So CBS told uh, Irwin, and this is one of the things I always wanted to know, part of the reason I wanted to do the book, nobody ever explained why the show changed. Because it was so good. Why change something that's working? And it was winning its time. Why change something that's working on that level? And uh, But CBS uh, told Irwin, you got to get rid of him. And the robot. Because this is a family hour TV show. It's on from 7.30 to 8.30. We have five-year-olds and six-year-olds watching this show and eating it up. One of the rules on our network for Family Hour is you never put children in peril. Right. And this guy is telling the robot in like the third or fourth episode after they crash on the planet, he says, when you find any of them out there by themselves, terminate them. Right. Make it look like an accident. I'm a doctor. I'm going to say it's an atmospheric thing. You know, another reason why we have to get off this planet and let's get rid of them. Don't kill the pilot. I need him to get back to Earth, but get rid of all those Robinson people. And that includes the kids. And so the minute you start doing that, the network starts having a heart attack. (laughs) And so word came down, you got to get rid of him. And Jonathan Harris was a smart guy besides being a good actor. He knew that was coming. He knew right. it. And, and so he started sneaking a little comedy into the part. He wasn't changing the lines of dialogue because you weren't allowed to do that. The network had approved the script, asked for changes. The changes were made. That's what you're going to shoot. And uh, so but what, he would just put a spin on it. He would change the delivery a little bit. Mm. And, uh, and he was being very sly about it. It wasn't over the top like it became later. It was very subtle if you watch those early episodes. Yes. After the first few, he starts slipping in a little bit of um, uh, humor and something you and I talked about privately uh, when we first spoke was uh, he started showing fear right. not the, the scaredy cat Dr. Smith that he became later but he started showing enough fear to where the audience would empathize with this guy and even though he was, he was the villain we still understood how traumatic this whole thing was for him and therefore you start caring for him and, uh, and Irwin came into his trailer, his dressing room and walked up to him, and Erwin would always point his finger in people's faces <laughs> to try to intimidate them. And Erwin walks in and points his finger in Jonathan's face, and he says, You, I know what you're doing. Do more. And he turns and walks out. Because Erwin didn't want to get rid of the character, but he didn't know what to do. And he's watching the footage of the episodes they're filming and going, This could work. Yeah. And so they started slanting it in that direction. And suddenly the fan mail starts pouring in for Smith and the robot. And Billy uh, got the most mail throughout the course of the show. And so the network, of course, counts mail as a very important thing. And they came back and said, um, don't kill him. <laughs> Let's keep him, but keep doing what you're doing. Okay. And there, that's how it started changing. As you mentioned, those first, those first episodes were 
they were dark, and Doctor Smith was presented uh, much more as a villain, and the robot was a, a, a menace as well. They were they were dangerous to the to the Robinsons. Yeah. And add to that, the first season is filmed in black and white, so it's no wonder that kids were getting uh, nightmares. Little kids were getting nightmares from time to time. What I like about the book, though, Mark, is all the little notes you include for almost every episode, I think maybe every episode, from the mm-hmm. CBS guys that are reviewing the scripts. And they were having a tremendous influence on the way the show was was produced and involved. I don't yes. think a lot of the fans appreciate that. That's the way it always was uh, back then. Uh, networks now, like Netflix with the new Lost in Space show, uh, they trust Kevin Burns and... and um, uh, Josh Peters and and they 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 just uh, uh, I'm sorry John Jassy Jassy of uh, uh, of uh, legendary pictures they trust them to um, know what they're doing and they kind of gave them a blank check I, I mean they said how much money do you need to do this show how many episodes do you want for the first season to do the 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 story arc that you want and then they kind of left them alone right. you know. They would sit in on the meetings, they would sit in on the casting uh, and all that because they wanted to feel that they're involved, but they pretty much gave them the artistic freedom to do the show that they want to do, and it's quite good, I think. And, uh, but back then, the networks pulled all the strings, and the sponsors. The sponsors had a lot of say in what was going to happen on the show. That's why everybody smoked on TV shows back then, because you had cigarette sponsors. So right. even if people didn't smoke, and a smoker can tell, because they're not really inhaling. They just kind of blow it out in a big puff. Mm. Uh, but, they're, but they're all lighting up cigarettes all the time because that's one of the big sponsors. You know, so back then, uh, you, you had to deal with those obstacles, with, uh, with that help, if you want to call it help. And, um, and the same thing, uh, if you read the Star Trek books, you'll see even more so there because Stan Robertson over at NBC would send in memos on every episode as it was being written and as it was being filmed making suggestions, making demands. Uh, Roddenberry would butt heads with NBC on almost every issue imaginable. And that was the difference between Gene Roddenberry and Irwin Allen, by the way, is uh, Roddenberry was an ex-cop and an ex-army uh, pilot from World War II. And he was a tough guy. Mm. And, and he had a real big vision of what he wanted the show to be. And he was very determined he was not going to compromise. And, and so he was constantly fighting the network, which is why the show ended up going off the air. There's been folklore on the internet for 50 years. And, well, the internet hasn't been around for 50 years, but the folklore has been. Uh, that the show did not do well in the ratings. We licensed all the Nielsen ratings for every single episode and published them in the books right. on Star Trek. And you can see it winning its time slot. You can see it's NBC's top-rated Thursday night show. And they move it over to Friday. It takes a hit because that's a bad night for a show like that, but it's still the network's top-rated Friday night show. Well, why would a network cancel their top show of the night? Because they're fighting with the producer. He's putting things into the show that they don't want to have in there. He's talking about Vietnam and racism and sexism and God and all that stuff that Star Trek was doing that they weren't supposed to do. Well, Irwin was cut from a different cloth. Uh, Irwin wanted it to be entertainment. He wasn't looking to make social statements. And he also was always respectful of who he was working for. He was respectful of the studio and he was respectful of the network. So if they were asking for something that wasn't quite the way he wanted to do it, he would try to talk them out of it. He would try to maybe find a compromise. But if it, if, if it came down to that this could be a deal breaker, he'd say, okay, it's on your network, it's your show, I'll do what you want. 
He didn't want to turn Lost in Space into a comedy. He he directed the pilot. You know, he same thing with Voice of the Sea, same thing with all of his shows. He would direct the pilot, and that's the show he wanted to make. So if the show changed, if it became like Voice of the Sea and became Monster of the Week by the time it got into its third and fourth year, or Lost in Space becoming kind of a sci-fi sitcom, uh, it's because that's what the network wanted it to be. And he did it. And the curious thing about Lost in Space is the ratings just kept going up. Right. I, I mean, as much as us Lost in Space purists love those first episodes, and, and you mentioned they're dark, they're film noir. I mean, they're right. so dark, they're film noir. As much as we love those episodes and the more serious approach to the, the uh, subject and the drama, the when it got more colorful, when it got sillier, when it became more abstract fantasy <laughs> uh, the ratings yeah, yeah. fantasy thank you the rating is surreal the, the ratings actually went up they were good to begin with but now now it's really doing great so uh you know the audience was saying no this is what we want now us little kids we're going no no make it more like it was <laughs> but our parents are now watching it with us because they they were laughing at it to begin with and uh, now they can laugh openly because it's supposed to be funny. So now they're watching it, you know. So it's it's just uh, it's about it's about pleasing the network, pleasing the audience. One of the things that occurs to me as you talk about Irwin wanting to please the the networks is, unless I'm mistaken, unlike uh, unlike Irwin, Roddenberry was really just focused on Star Trek, one show at a time, I guess. And yeah, Irwin's trying to sell more shows, right? In fact, doesn't he? It, have about three shows going at one time at yes. different periods? And, and the only other producer who did was Quinn Martin, who also had three. And uh, so, um, you know, Quinn Martin produced more than three over the course of the 60s, but he had three running uh, at the same time. And and Irwin did as well, but Irwin's doing the hardest genre in the world to do. Mm. I mean, it's much easier to shoot an episode of The Fugitive than to shoot an episode of Lost in Space and Voyage Beyond the Sea uh, in the day and age before CGI, you know? So he's really working harder and accomplishing more than any other producer in TV, then or now, or ever. And uh, so it's, it's uh, quite remarkable the difference between them, besides the fact that Roddenberry wanted to make statements, he wanted to be a modern-day Jonathan Swift, Irwin wanted to do Swiss Family Robinson, Treasure Island. He wanted to entertain people, especially kids. He was a kid at heart, and he knew what he loved when he was watching movies when he was young, and he wanted to just put that on TV every week. But he was, as I said, he was a workaholic. He was not married. He did not have kids. He did not have any of the distractions that Gene Roddenberry and probably any other producer has, you know, because they, they want to have a life. Sure. Well, for Irwin, his entire life was doing these shows. So he was able to put 100% of himself into doing the shows. I hope you're enjoying this great interview with writer, producer, director, and author Mark Cushman as much as I am. The thing I love about talking to Mark is he's not just an authority on the subject of Lost in Space, he's also a fan, and that passion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about Lost in Space, Irwin Allen, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space author, Mark Cushman. Wow. Well, now we talked about the talent that was on the screen for Lost in Space, but I want to talk a little bit about the talent behind the scenes because one of the things you learn in the books is the 
the the talented directors that he had working for him and the writers. I want to talk about the directors a little bit. We noticed in the first several episodes the direction, the cinematography, the 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 shot composition. Uh, these are movies. These are movie quality yeah. directors. Unfortunately, they're having a real hard time ma- making an episode come in on schedule. I mean, uh, and I think that is explained by the they're trying to make movie quality pictures but some of those directors right. did great things they really did and and uh, and quite a few of them went on to came out of the outer limits which was a beautiful show i mean the direction on that show was just fantastic you talk about film noir black and white right i mean it's just gorgeous and quite a few of them went on to uh star trek and a lot of the uh, composers as well alexander courage and so forth went on to uh, score a lot of star trek episodes and everything so they were all moving around between those shows but yeah these guys were really good and and as you look at the book because we we do a chapter on each episode you you've got the production schedules you've got the budgets you've got the ratings you've got uh the salaries you've got all that information it's not a book of for anyone who hasn't read it it's it's not a book of statistics the statistics are in there but we call it a biography because it's written like a biography but it's got that information in there so you're, you're the main thing is the emotional aspect of what's going on trying to get these episodes done and uh but the but the statistics are available in there as well and you see in those early episodes they're supposed to be shooting these in six days which was the norm for tv back then and now it's about seven but um seven eight but back then it was six and uh so almost an episode a week and if you don't keep up with that schedule one you're spending too much money you're going over budget two you're not going to make your deliveries in time. You've got to deliver an episode each week. So they start shooting a season a few months ahead, knowing it was going, they were going to fall behind. But you can't miss your air dates. You know, if right. you, you don't deliver next week's show to CBS in time to go on the air and they have to stick on a rerun or something, uh, you're going to get canceled. Uh, it's all about um, trust. It's all about we were trusting you to deliver these episodes. We're promoting them. We've got the time slot open. We've sold the time to the sponsors. We have to have a show and, and no no excuses. So if, if you're spending more than six days filming these episodes, you're going to, by the time you get to the end of the season, you're going to be late. And it happened with Star Trek. They missed a couple of their air dates. And CBS was, uh, NBC was furious because they had sold time. And now they have to stick in a rerun. And now they have to give a refund to the sponsors for most of that money that they'd spent. Uh, So Irwin never missed an air date. But he sure came close, as you see in those books, because, uh, you know, you get to where it's late late in the season and and you had a three-month head start and it's gotten shipped away. And now you're literally delivering an episode days before it's going to go on the air. Uh, so, uh, so it became very urgent for them to find a way to not be spending seven, eight, nine days filming an episode. There was one that did take nine and a couple that took eight and those early ones. Uh, and they had to find a way to do it quicker. So they had to get rid of these great directors who were taking too long and find people uh, like Sobe Martin who could come in and do it in six days. Whatever it took, whatever was required. And take naps. 
and to, and for him take naps. He was he was in his sixties, and uh, which today is like being in your forties. But uh, but back then, you, know, you have your cocktail lunches and everything. And by midday in the afternoon, right. mid afternoon, you're you're snoozing in the chair, <laughs> and somebody would give him a little nudge, and he'd say, "Action!" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what they learned, and and what you find out uh, in book two. There's a three-book set, as you know, one for each season. And there was supposed to be a fourth season. You find out what happened there when you get into book three. But what what you see by the time you get into book two is that you got more of these type of directors doing the show. So it's less artistic. It's colorful. It's creative. It's fun. But it's not film, you know. Right. And and uh, and you've got people like Sobe sitting in the chair snoozing and taking cat naps. But the cast knew what they were doing at that point. You know, they didn't really need direction. And and, and Billy was the, the go-to guy. He saved them because Billy Mooney had a, still does, has a photographic memory. So he's got all of his scripts from the original show. And they're all pristine. They don't even look like they've been opened. Mm. And and uh, Kevin Burns told me, he asked Billy once, and I, took, I, of course, interviewed Billy for the, and I think I asked him too, because Kevin gave me a heads, heads up on it. But it's like, how come your scripts are in such good condition? And he said, I read them once. <laughs> he would get the script, he would read it one time, and he knew all the dialogue, not just for him, but for everybody. And so they'd be on set, and you got these grown-ups, and they would turn to him and say, uh, Billy, what's my line? Mm. <laughs> and he would tell them. You, know, you have a script supervisor on set for that purpose uh, as well, but instead of looking at them, because a script supervisor would have to like turn the page and try to find the line, you just look over to Billy and he says, oh, you're supposed to say this and then I'm going to say that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, I think you mentioned sure. he could also make a take in one time as well. He was. He, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's another reason why uh, when you got into the second season, it was more about Dr. Smith, the robot, and Billy. Uh, more scenes with them and less scenes with the other cast members because, because all three of them always knew their lines. They always could do it in one take. And they would rehearse in, in uh, Jonathan Harris's dressing room. And they would come out and boom, take one. Hey, perfect. Let's get some close-ups. We're moving on. Uh, where the other actors, uh, you know, uh, they would might need a couple takes to get up to speed. Say, oh, I can do it better. Let's do another take. Well, that's time and money. Right. So uh, with these three guys, they, you could you could send them on the road. I mean, they they it was like a stage bit. They knew what they were doing and they got it right the first time every time. So once once Irwin saw that, he started telling his writers, write more scenes for the three of them alone, because if half the episode is the three of them alone, we can get this shot in six days, no problem. Right. Let's let's talk about the writers as well, because uh, in addition to the directors and the composers and whatnot they had some great writers and it started right at the beginning i guess erwin got the credit for the pilot but he had brought mm -hmm. in another writer uh i believe i'm pronouncing winselberg winselberg uh -huh. and he it actually wrote the script for the reluctant stowaway which was the broadcast premiere and then erwin had tasked him to write story outlines for the first six episodes and mm -hmm. other other script writers came in and you described that process in detail and so forth but there was a little bit of a, a, a of a kerfuffle, I guess, between Winselberg and Irwin about the crediting for the reluctant stowaway. What what was the what was the deal there? Because he's not actually credited; he goes by a uh, S. Bar, S -bar da David, 
Right. Yeah, yeah. He did the same thing on Star Trek, by the way, which really pissed Gene Roddenberry off and and ended their relationship. He did two episodes for Star Trek. He did a third, which wasn't made, which is covered in that book, because I I cover the the episodes that don't get made as well as the ones that do. Um, And and, uh, he used uh, his pseudonym, S. Bar David, on both of those shows because Roddenberry always rewrote everybody. I mean, you watch those episodes, uh, half the dialogue you're hearing came from Gene Roddenberry's typewriter, even though the episode says it was written by Harlan Ellison or, mm. or whoever. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's Roddenberry. And then when Roddenberry got burned out, he, he brought in uh, Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana, and they started rewriting all the scripts because they knew the voices. Uh, you know, you, you hire these freelancers, and maybe they've seen an episode or two, but they, but you know, they'll write a lot of dialogue that doesn't quite sound like Kirk or Spock or whatever. And so Gene would just rewrite everything, and it would it would uh, upset a lot of the writers. Uh, well, Irwin did the same thing. I mean, Irwin was a writer. Uh, he just didn't have time to to write uh, a lot of stuff because he was producing multiple series, and uh, he was a director, he was a writer, he was a producer. He won an Academy Award for doing all three of those things on the sea around us mm-hmm. in the uh, mid 1950s. So he's an Academy Award-winning writer, director, producer, and and he would have liked to have, have directed every episode, but he couldn't because he's running back and forth between three different shows, you know, and right. dealing with the network and all that. So um, every time he would come on set, the directors would kind of freeze up because they he'd be <laughs> looking over their shoulder and he'd be like a backseat driver, you know, don't do it sure. that way, do it this way. So they would kind of get into a routine of. They would stop work the minute Irwin came on the set. <laughs> and one, Don Richardson, would refuse to do any work until Irwin left. Uh, I'm not going to shoot anything until you're gone. We can sit here and chat about whatever you want, but I'm not going to shoot a scene until you go. Uh, and so he'd puff, huff, and puff and walk away because he, he needs him to get to work and get that six-day schedule done. Well, uh, the same thing with the writers. Uh, he would be rewriting a lot of their stuff, and he especially did with the pilot um, and, the, the, and those first episodes. And Shimon Winselberg uh, was very bothered by that. He was an award-winning playwright. Mm. And it was like, you don't change my dialogue. <laughs> and uh, and Irwin did. So Shimon said, well, then you're going to put S. Bar David on that episode. He did allow his, his uh, name uh, to go on an episode he wrote called Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. I love that I think one. maybe ep- episode 10 or something from the first season. Yeah. Uh, they, they didn't touch that one very much, and so he let that name go on there. But in, the, um, in that pilot, yeah, he did S. Bar David. Now, I believe he, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he let them put his name, as, uh, Shimon Witzelberg, down as the story credit for the other episodes because right. he just he was writing the story. It was somebody else's dialogue anyway. But on that, that first episode, uh, since he wrote that script, he was bothered that Irwin changed a lot of the dialogue. He felt that the dialogue was too wooden. Um, you know, Irwin didn't really delve that deeply into the psyche of the characters. You know, he would put in action lines like, there's a meteorite, veer left. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that bothered Shimon, so, so he did that. And that, that caused a falling out, because he had also written the, the second season premiere episode for Voice on the Sea, uh, Jonah and the Whale which was a big event, uh, and, um, and his name is on that one. But, uh, but because of the fall, and he was supposed to write more, but because, and I think he wrote a, a, a time tunnel. But because of the falling out over that Lost in Space script, uh, they, uh, he, they stopped, he stopped working for the show. 
Wow. Well, and he went over to Star Trek, yeah. and then he had a falling out with Roddenberry. So there you go. <laughs> well, he writes these these story outlines, and, and I'm kind of focusing on the first five episodes because that's we've already done podcasts reviewing those first mm-hmm. five episodes. So I'm kind of sticking mainly to that for the in depth stuff here. He writes these story outlines, and part of the reason for doing that is they're going to take a lot of the action scenes for, that were filmed for the pilot, and and integrate those into the broadcast episodes with the addition of Dr. Smith and the robot. And right. he actually writes six story outlines. They went up the fifth, the sixth one, uh, I think it's what's called Re- refuge of the damned. That doesn't ever get filmed. What, what was the story behind that uh, episode? There, there were a few over the course of the series that did not get made. Usually uh, same thing with Star Trek. A lot, a lot of ones with Star Trek that didn't get made that were actually got into final draft uh, but they didn't get shot. Uh, the, the reason was usually one or two. Um, either uh, I mean, the main the main reason that these ep- episodes did not get made for these sci-fi shows is because they just couldn't get the budget in line. Mm. There was just stuff in the story that was going to make this one go over budget. They they would do the breakdown. They'd get the script written. They would do a breakdown, and it would come out eight days. You know, and uh, and two hundred thousand dollars instead of six days and one hundred and forty thousand dollars, and and so they would try to rewrite the script or change it or see what maybe what they could do to bring it in line. And sometimes these stories just weren't things that could come in line. And then the other thing that would sometimes uh, get them taken off the production schedule was the network would have an issue with something in the script. They're a classic one. I know we're talking Lost in Space, but it's just such a great example on Star Trek. They did one in the first season, written by Barry Trivers, who had done another episode for them, and it was one of Gene Roddenberry's ideas about where they beamed down to a planet that's an Earth-parallel world, and they'd done mm. a few of those on Star Trek. And this one is like America pre-Civil War. Uh, but the difference is, is, is uh, the blacks are the ruling race, and whites are slaves. And so the, uh, the landing party is immediately captured, and they're all white. Mm. Except for Yuhura, Yuhura. So they're assuming that Yuhura has like been kidnapped by these slaves, and so they they put them in shackles and everything. And it's kind of up to her to maybe find a way to free the other guys. Uh, you know, Kirk and the others. Spock I wasn't with them; he was on the ship. Because how would you explain that right. <laughs> in pre-Civil War? <laughs> you know, you well, guys had stuck in a Chinese rice picking machine. I think they said that in one episode. But uh, uh, NBC. Uh, just would not go for it. And so they brought it back that Roddenberry rewrote it and they turned it down again. And so he gave it to Gene Kuhn who rewrote it for the second season and they turned it down again. And they just said, it's just too uh, heavy. It's, it's, it's something we we're going to get too many letters. We can't do this. So, uh, so those were the two reasons things didn't get made is either it just wasn't going to come in on schedule and budget, or it was something that the network was having second thoughts about. Well, I can't imagine they would have left uh... Uh, damned in the title of a <laughs> yeah <laughs> episode. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, a that minor point. Changed. <laughs> um, it would have been attack of the monster from the fog. <laughs> yeah. So when you're looking at the the scripts, you give us all the notes. You say that the first and second draft of the script is produced and the dates, and then they have a script editor, uh, Tony Wilson. Was his impact as big as it seems on a lot yes. of these stories? And just real briefly, I'm running you out of time here, but I want to hear what you have to say about Tony Wilson. 
Yeah, well, he was the the, the uh, story editor, and each show had one back then. Now you have a staff of 10 people on these shows. But back then in the 60s, you had the producer, the associate producer, and the story editor. And the associate producer's job was mainly, he was the nuts and bolts producer. Uh, he was the one who had to figure out how are we going to shoot this thing and break down the budget and all that kind of stuff. And he ran the set. Uh, the story editor, who was like an associate producer as well, he ran the writer's room, and he rewrote the scripts and dealt with the network, and the producer kind of oversaw it all. Uh, so Tony Wilson was very important on Lost in Space. He was doing the actual rewriting on these scripts. I mean, Irwin did the first couple to get the show up and going, and, uh, and then he handed it off to Tony, and they would have their meetings, and Irwin would give his notes, and you see a lot of those in the book. But, uh, but Tony, uh, you don't see very many memos from Tony because he was too busy writing. Yeah. And he would come to the, uh, the, the meetings around Irwin's big board table, and they would discuss it. But you see the memos from the network. You see them from Irwin. You see them from his, his other associate producer, who's kind of the line producer. Uh, and then Tony's job was to, uh, Tony's memos are basically the scripts. You know, right. and and I point out in the chapters uh, a lot of things that got changed in various episodes and so forth. And then, of course, Jonathan Harris started rewriting his own dialogue. Now he wasn't allowed to do that at first, but once the network embraced what he was doing, then they kind of gave him a pass. And uh, <clears throat> if he had written in anything that upset the networks, that would have ended real quick. But he never did. You know, he just changed dialogue. He, he just kept making it funnier and sillier, mm. and the networks loved that. So he was doing a lot of rewriting as well. And Tony didn't have a problem with it because Tony knew this This is what's keeping the show on the air. Dr. Smith and the boy and the robot are driving this show. Sorry, Guy. Sorry, June. We know you're the stars, but this this is what's bringing in the audience. This is Everybody loves you. Uh, Billy was so thrilled that Zora was his dad. He just couldn't believe it. But but everyone knew that the real money was coming from those characters, Smith, the robot, and Will. And and so when Jonathan started changing his dialogue, Tony went along with it, and then Tony would pick up on it and start writing a lot of the the humor into the scripts as well. Uh, but nobody could fine-tune the character better for Smith than Jonathan Harris. Well, he I made know... he made up all those lines, all that you bubbling booby, <laughs> you meandering, whatever you know. Even always rhyme, or, or they would start with the same letter. And uh, uh, it was, Jonathan was the one who was coming up with all that stuff, and then Tony would start putting some of that in the script. But I always suspected, and from what I could see going through the show files, that Jonathan would handwrite the changes into the script, and then Tony would have them typed in. So I, I, th I think most of the Dr. Smith dialogue was being rewritten by Jonathan Harris, certainly by the time they got to season two. But Tony was very important to the show. Well, of course, that dynamic rears its head as the, as the seasons of Lost in Space go by, and it does cause some hurt feelings behind the scenes and some issues with the other cast members. And that's something yeah. I hope I hope we're going to be able to bring you back on, Mark, down the road, because there's just too many questions I have that we can possibly get in in about an hour. So maybe right. maybe in a, we get maybe halfway through the first season or so, we'll we'll ask you to come back in, and because I've got a ton more questions, if, if that's sure, something that'll sure. work. Yeah, and we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But yeah, do a few more episodes, and if you want to uh, have me drop in on one, that's fine, or, you, or you, we can just... Uh, do another one like this and we'll, we'll cover all that because yeah it did there were a lot of hurt feelings one, one thing i would like to say in, in conclusion here is that they all stayed remarkably close um what i was really blown away by when i did these books 
and it was supposed to be a two-book set. The first book was going to be Irwin Allen's early career, the, the, the pilot, and the first season, all the black and white episodes, and then we were going to do one book to cover all the color episodes. It ended up three books because what I wasn't expecting uh, was to find out how the, fa- the family is still a family, how they've all continued. They call each other all the time, Christmas cards, birthday cards, mm. phone calls. They get together for lunch and dinner. Uh, they do so many things. And I also didn't know about all the attempts to bring the show back and how close it came to coming back. And, uh, and, and then the movie, of course, which I cover, and then the, getting up to the new Netflix series now. So there was so much that happened, and I, and I didn't know, nor did anybody else, why the show went off the air, because the ratings are still great in the third season, and there was a fourth season that had been ordered. So I had to solve that mystery. So there was just uh, so much stuff on the back end that it ended up becoming a three-book set. So my statement is that they all stayed a family. Uh, Unfortunately, Guy passed away, and now Jonathan's passed away, but but they all stayed a family, uh, always getting together, uh, because I think because there were kids in the cast. That, that June and Guy became like surrogate parents, and Mark became like the big brother and uh, or the uncle, and that and 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 Jonathan and Will were so close. Uh, Bill, Bill, Jonathan, Billy, uh, that after the show ended, it did not end their relationship. So even though there were hurt feelings, you know, and of course Guy and June weren't happy to see their parts getting smaller and smaller and smaller on a show that they were supposed to be the primary stars of. There was there was no um, hatred between anybody. Uh, I've never seen right. a cast that loved themselves, loved each other more than that cast, and proved it over the course of time by staying uh, a family. So that that's quite remarkable, and that's what you see in book three, which uh, really is kind of heartwarming uh, to see it go that direction. When it's not just the show gets canceled, no. The relationships continue. So yeah, there, it, it's it's uh, there. There is a lot we can talk about there, about what they were feeling and what they tried to do about it. But I just wanted your listeners to know that uh, the love that you see on the screen was real. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you making that point. I love these books. I I want everybody to go out and get these books. And the and I've got the uh, Star Trek books are, are in my uh, queue for the next things that I'm going to be reading. It's a little <laughs> intimidating. It's a little intimidating if you just look at them because it's it's got to be over 1,500 pages. But it's written so beautifully. And you know we've talked a lot about what sounds like statistics and everything. But the way you present everything. As you say, you can you can read a chapter, which is basically an episode uh, guide, and then go watch the episode again. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I tell people that when I'm out doing book signings, and they come up and they go and they look, they come up with the intention of buying all three volumes, whether it's Star Trek or Lost in Space, uh, and and they look at them and suddenly, oh my God, that's ten pounds of books, and 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 people don't read that much anymore. And I say, don't think of it as three book, big books. Think of it as 82 little ones, because right. <laughs> that's what it is. You, you read a chapter, and you watch the episode. And you can do that. And I, I, one couple came up to me uh, at a show in Vegas, and uh, they, they were into the second book, I think. They'd read the first one, and they were into the second one. And they said, this is our Saturday night thing we do together, this married couple. They, mm-hmm. they, they would read the chapter. One of them would read it out loud to the other. They'd kind of switch off on that. And then they would watch the episode. And they, and they said to me, you 
have saved our marriage. <laughs> they said, this is our Saturday night date, you know, and, and they were just having a ball doing it. I think they were joking when they said I saved their marriage, but, but, they, but they did say it was their Saturday night date. They, they looked forward to it every Saturday night. They were going to read a chapter and watch an episode. So those books will last you a while. Well, I'm not sure. I may have to order another set because you should see uh, volume one I've got here. It's so dog-eared, and I've got sticky notes all through it because, (laughs) as I said, it's my Bible. But anyway, great. And real quickly, so you've got the new Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea book coming out. Is that coming out in May? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, uh, I think around the third week of May that should be out. It's it's, it's off being printed now, and... uh, um, I, I like it a lot because that that was supposed to come out before Lost in Space, uh, and the reason it got held up is because the owners of the show uh, said, "Well, no, we're, we've got our 50th anniversary happening here. We got the new Netflix show coming up. We'd really like to see these books out first. So they put out the the Lost in Space books first. So the Voyage one kind of got put on the shelf, and uh, and I had to go through it recently before it went to print. Uh, just to do one last pass and see if there's anything that I wanted to change and so forth. I went through it with the editor. And and I hadn't read it in two years since I wrote it. Mm. And I'm reading it, and every time I'd finish a chapter, I'd have to go watch the episode. So it's working on me, too. Mm. <laughs> That's great. And so it's the same format like the uh, Star Trek yeah. the Lost in Space books? Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the format that I I like. It's it's, it's it, hey, why fix it if 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 it ain't broke? Uh, I kind of came up with that for I Spy, carried it into Star Trek, carried it into Voyage, and then into Lost in Space, and and uh, I even do that with the the new Moody Blues book that came out a couple months ago with each of their albums as you walk through their career, and uh, because that's the way I like to read stuff. When I read a nonfiction and they speed through something, and they mention. Oh, and then he made this movie, and there's like half a page. It's like, oh, no, but I love that movie. Right. <laughs> Give me more. Uh, don't tell me about who he was dating. I don't care. Tell me about making that movie. And and so that's the way I do it, uh, and it's I just beautiful. structure them. And I'll tell you th- th- this to your listeners. I know we have exceeded an hour here, so uh, real quick. Um, there, As you know, there's a story arc to the books, to all three. So it, it's not just that now we're going to pause from the story and tell about the making of this episode. The making of each episode contributes to the overall story because the people are changing. The show is changing. Uh, they're learning things. They're learning what not to do. Let's don't do another episode like that one. So mm. each, each, it's a step. It's like going up a stairway. Each step is, is an important step in that journey. Uh, so they all combine together to tell the overall story of the series. Uh, just like a chapter in a, in, a, in a fiction, in a book of fiction, you got your different chapters, but each one of those chapters is intricate to the story that's being told. Because uh, I know some people jump out of order. Oh, I'm going to read, this is my favorite episode, I'm going to read that one first. Well, you can do that, but mm. it's, it's almost like watching a movie out of sequence. Right. You're missing. You're missing the story of the of the story, really. If you yeah, don't do that, right? So but once you buy the book, you can do anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> you got to buy it, though. Well, um, well, I'm looking forward to that one. That's, I can't wait for that to come out. So you wrote that two years ago. You got to be working on something right now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm can you say working it? on. Uh, I'm working on a fourth uh, Star Trek book, which is almost done. I've been working on that on and off for a few years, and that covers the uh, the, the first three books. Covered the first series, one for each season. This one covers what happened in between the two series. 
uh, in between the original series and Next Generation, which would be the uh, the animated show, the aborted Phase Two show, uh, the first couple movies, uh, Gene Roddenberry's pilots in the 1970s. So it's this period where we were all waiting for Star Trek to come back and wondering why it wasn't coming back during the 1970s. And you find out why a lot of very surprising information in there that I was, that I unearthed. So that, that is the one I'm currently on. And, um, uh, and then I'll be, then I got to tidy up uh, Voice Bomb C Volume Two. It's written. I just have to go through that again. We'll be putting pictures in there, and and my thanks again to Kevin Burns and his office and his people. The pictures they they provided are just fantastic. Oh, beautiful. I mean, they're just they're stuffed full of pictures, and uh, I, I wish we could do them in color. But at least for Lost in Space and early Voice Bomb C, it was in black and white anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's the way it should look. Well, now let me ask you this: on your Star Trek uh, in the seventies, because I believe the first motion picture came out in seventy nine. Do you do you talk about that at all? Yes, uh, uh, trying to fit it all in. That's always the big challenge, because uh, I, I unearth so much information, and these memos are so interesting to me. All the back and forth between right. Gene and the studio, and all that. Uh, it's it's hard to not put all that in there. And and so I've been given uh, uh, an editor for the for the next one who's going to who is who is not a Star Trek fan. So hopefully she will be able to say we don't need this, we don't need that because <laughs> uh the, the books get rather big. And and uh but there's just I go through the the uh show files. I'm going through the Roddenberry vault and just going through all of his memos and there's so much drama in every one of these productions. Uh, not that people are necessarily fighting, not that kind of drama, but you know, conflict can just be they're disagreeing, or or you know, the budget says we. Uh, what I love about these Star Trek books is Bob Justman has such a great sense of humor, and his memos are so funny, and and he would write to Gene Roddenberry, Gene Cooney, and say, I just read this latest script, and if you don't kill this now, if you continue with this script. I'm going to start sending you my doctor's bills and, you know, things like that, because how am I supposed to do what you're asking me to do in this script, you know? And, and so that's, it's funny conflict, but it's conflict nonetheless. So you see the struggle in getting these shows made and you see the reports from CBS saying, uh, oh man, this, I got to tell you, this Voice Bomb C book, some of the censor reports from ABC on Voyage just blew me away <laughs> because like, especially during the first season, um, you know, anytime if there was a Russian missile being fired into the air and it's going to fall in the United States and the Seaview has to rush in and try to keep this from happening or whatever the story might be, uh, they would say, you have to put up a futuristic date. You ha- you, you've got the president in the Oval Office addressing the country. Make sure there's a calendar hanging on the wall behind him that <laughs> says that this is 10 years in the future because we don't want anybody watching this and thinking it's really happening. They wow. worried about that kind of stuff. Wow. They, they really did. <laughs> it was remarkable. Uh, the Vulcan um, mind meld came up because NBC, there was an episode where Spock and Dr. McCoy were hypnotizing this guy to try to find out what his suppressed memories were. And, uh, and NBC freaked out and said, you cannot hypnotize anybody on our network. The audience will get hypnotized. <laughs> and so Roddenberry thought, oh, but I got that. That's important to the plot. We have to access his, his, his locked memory. And so Roddenberry came up with the Vulcan mind meld, you know, oh, and man. which is great because yeah. sometimes that's, that's fun to read those kind of memos because you've got a creative person up against an obstacle 
being told you can't do what you need to do in this story. And he's and because it's science fiction, he can find a way to do it and get around the network's rules and regulations. But uh, but yes, reading those those censor memos from the from the networks back then, it's remarkable that these shows were half as entertaining as they were because so much was taboo. You just couldn't say this, you couldn't show this, you know, and and they had to find a way to get around it. That's the fun of it. That is fun. Gosh, well, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and joining us today on the podcast. We link to your bookstore in every one of our episode show notes. Uh, uh, is there any place else you want us to uh, mention where li- our listeners can catch up with what you're doing? Uh, I have my own uh, uh, website that I never go to, <laughs> but my publisher uh, tells me they keep up, keep it up, and they put new information up there. But um, uh, my publisher's website has it all: uh, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com uh, dot com uh, and um, uh, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. dot com. It's a long, long name, uh, but anyway, they've got all the information up there on me, on the books. Uh, and if you buy direct from the publisher, they come signed by the author, whether it's me or one of their other authors and things yeah. like that. Uh, so it's, it's a good place to go to get them, but they're also on Amazon. They're also in Barnes and Noble and all places where books usually go. Okay. Well, we'll have that in the show notes and, uh, thank you so much again. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, on Alpha. yeah, it's been great. And, uh, we want to have you back. So, um, I hope we didn't wear out our welcome with you because it's been, I know uh, this has been a treat for our listeners. Thank you so much. Mark. Yeah, but it's been, it's been torture for me. You can tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about these shows anytime, Blaine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with Mark Cushman. You can tell that he's a real busy man, so let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll make time down the road to come back and talk more Lost in Space. Check out his books and order them from Jacobs Brown Media to get your own autographed copies. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.